Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you need to know. To infinity and beyond, Mario Draghi cutting rates and restarting bond buying to support the Eurozone growth. Goodwill hunting, President Trump delaying tariff hikes, China says it's a goodwill gesture and the ripple effect. Day four of our crypto crazy with the CEO of Ripple, how their platform works and how XRP, the cryptocurrency, gets used. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. move once again where there's no goodwill hunting required i see goodwill everywhere right now president trump delaying the tariff hikes by two weeks china perhaps looking at further agricultural purchases it's like the last month never even happened and we've got stimulus coming from the european central bank everyone's happy unless you're a saver in europe right now in which case it continues to be pretty painful. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures right now. The stock markets here higher will move closer potentially to record territory early on in trading today. We're less than 1% away, in fact, from fresh record highs for the Dow and for the S&P 500 right now. Helping us along here, as I mentioned, the news that President Trump will delay tariffs that were due to kick in on October 1st. The delay, in fact, is only for two weeks, but it does follow China's gesture of goodwill, let's call it, earlier this week. And right now it seems that's enough. Though I have to say the impact of the trade war once again displayed in the European data this morning. Eurozone factory output contracting by almost half a percent in July, much worse than expected. Germany, again one of the worst hit. The IFO Institute saying a German recession now likely. Step forward to much fanfare. Super Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank. A positive reaction action right now from European stock markets as the ECB announced a restart of bond buying and a rate cut and provided no end date whatsoever. Where does this end? Well, right now, for this session at least, the euro heading lower. It's below 110 euros to the dollar. European bond yields also dropping too. Anna Stewart has been watching Super Mario Draghi and all the action. Talk us through the details, Anna, and then we'll analyze it. So this was the penultimate meeting for Super Mario, but it's very much his monetary policy swan song, uh, delivering on his career of doing whatever it takes with this latest package. And he kind of had to deliver here because it was really baked in. He really signaled back in June in a meeting that there was going to be a rate cut, that there was going to be QE, and that is exactly what we got. But let's run through it. We got the deposit rate, reduction of 10 basis points to minus 0.5%, uh, the introduction of a tiered system for banks to try and cushion the pain of those negative negative rates. The QE issue. This is the one where I feel like some investors will be disappointed. QE of 20 billion euros uh, of monthly asset purchases, uh, but with no end date. And that's key. The forward guidance in this meeting was very different, very dovish. No end date in sight for the rates or for QE. Julia? Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? You have to wonder, though, when you're cutting rates further into negative territory, it's painful for the banks. Is it really ultimately going to make them lend more? And is it going to ultimately help the Eurozone economy? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a skeptic here. The toolbox feels empty. However, one man very displeased, but actually trumping 
what the European Central Bank is doing here. President Trump, he said the European Central Bank acting quickly, cutting rates. They're trying and succeeding in depreciating the euro against the very strong dollar here, hurting U.S. exports. And the Fed sits and sits and sits. They get paid to borrow money while we are paying interest. What do we make of this? Because we are seeing a weaker euro ultimately as a result of this. And this does help European exporters. Julia, but I mean, first of all, let's just say that that tweet was as baked into today as the rate cut and the QE was, frankly. We all expected the president to, to tweet fairly quickly, although I say the speed at this suggests that perhaps he'd already drafted the message before the ECB made its decision. Anyway, uh, first off, the ECB does not target currency. They target inflation, and I'm sure that is going to be asked from Mario Draghi. He's doing the press conference right now. There'll be Q&A coming up soon, and I'm going to dive back in there and maybe ask him that very question. However, the President Trump does have a point here. You know, it is extraordinary that we are seeing negative rates, that, you know, banks are being, uh, sorry, uh, you know, negative rates here, the US not so much, but the US economy is growing faster. Um, I think that is just the way things are. He's going to keep using it to lambast the Fed. I'm not sure whether it'll work. No, I agree. And, and you know what? Mario Draghi is looking for a job, isn't he? Pretty soon. President Trump wants to hire him, he can ship him on over to the Federal Reserve. Why not? I do think that November 1st date is interesting, though. It's after the Brexit date of 31st of October and potentially seeing or not seeing auto tariffs from the United States on Europe, too. So I think there's more strategy here than meets the eye. Anna Stewart, we look forward to that presser and seeing you in action. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. A gesture of goodwill. President Trump delaying a tariff hike on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods until after the next round of U.S.-China trade talks. David Culver is in Beijing for us and looking at the reaction there. China also, David, and great to have you with us, potentially looking at pork and soybean purchases. Like I said earlier on the show, it's almost like the last month of escalation didn't happen. We're kind of back to post Osaka meeting. We are. We're seeing this back and forth here, and it seems like things have started to ease for now. But as you point out, it's been this back and forth. So there's this cautious optimism surrounding the trade talks. Perhaps the earliest indicator of a positive reaction comes out of the markets, the Asian markets closing here upwards. The U.S. futures also showing an upwards trend. And then politically, it's being received quite well here. We had China's Commerce Ministry holding a press briefing today. They seem to welcome the president's delay of these tariffs by two weeks, saying that this is creating a positive environment for trade negotiations. Interesting even looking at how soft the president's tweet was on this, seeming to come out of respect for China's National Day, a day, Julia, that marks 70 years of the founding of the communist China. So with the seemingly easing of tensions around trade talks, there is some of this hope going forward. But it comes after, of course, uh, China decided to ease 16 of the items, the tariffs that were uh, on U.S. goods coming into China, things like uh, cancer drugs. They had things like shrimp and animal feed. But noticeably missing on that list, Julia, were some of the big ones. As you point out, soybeans, pork, U.S. cars. So, So we're talking agriculture and manufacturing. Those are huge for the president's base. So ahead of 2020, we thought perhaps the Commerce uh, Ministry would uh, maybe ease some of the tariffs on those. Today, they said that Chinese companies have inquired about that, but they stopped short of actually going forward with a concession and putting those on the list. 
Yeah, it feels strategic, David, doesn't it? Um, you know, for me, as important as this yeah. is, and clearly investors uh, are energized by the prospect of any de-escalation or even stability here as far as hopes for a trade deal are concerned, it doesn't help us tackle the underlying issue here, which is concerns about technology theft. And that has nothing to do with this. And that, and a deal on that feels as remote as ever right now. Do you agree? Absolutely. And I think that's the concern here, certainly from the Chinese side, is is trying to figure out how to, to keep all of this lumped together and to find a way to, to move forward and, and find agreement and compromise when for the U.S. side of things, for President Trump and his administration, it, it's very difficult to separate the two, especially ahead of 2020. This has been something that has fed that hardline response, particularly when it comes to the trade war. And so going forward, to, to find the agreement is going to be a difficult one. And, and yet, right now, it seems both sides are playing nice. That could change tomorrow. We know that. Yeah, it's such a great point. Intrinsically tied. Never mind separation. David Culver, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right. Staying in Asia, though, now. One billion dollars wiped off the value of stocks in Hong Kong exchanges. The owner, of course, of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the LSE could be about to reject their bid. That's according to reports in the Financial Times. Investors, of course, concerned, and we were discussing this yesterday, that regulators won't sign off on the deal. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Is it that, Claire, or the fact that the CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges described this deal, this is brilliant, as a corporate Romeo and Juliet story? Big love story, bad ending. What do we make of that? Yeah, Julia, I think, you know, it's slightly unfortunate uh, comparison there. Presumably he was referring to the original love affair rather than the fact that they both ended up dead. <laughs> but uh, but look, I mean, they do look a little bit star-crossed at the moment as the dust has settled and, and analysts and investors have had a chance to go through some of the finer details of this. Uh, it does seem like there are going to be big hurdles. We heard uh, from the UK government yesterday, they said that uh, the London Stock Exchange is a critical part of the UK financial system. They'll be looking very closely uh, at the details here. We think the regulators are going to have some issue with the, the potential for Chinese uh, or, or Chinese-linked ownership here. Of course, Hong Kong, a, a Chinese territory. There are concerns there about the rising unrest rooted in fears uh, that, that China is tightening its grip on Hong Kong. Of course, the Hong Kong government uh, is the biggest single shareholder uh, of the Hong Kong exchanges and clearing. They have the power to appoint more than half uh, of the board directors there. There are concerns about reduced competition. That's a traditional concern when you see consolidation of stock exchanges. Concerns about data security. And it's not just the UK regulators, uh, the US regulators are also likely to take an interest because the London Stock Exchange also owns the London Clearing House, which clears almost all US interest rate swaps. So this uh, is an international issue. And you see with the Hong Kong Exchange's uh, stock price down today that there is, uh, you know, some concern that this might not go ahead. Yes, star-crossed indeed. Let's talk AB InBev as well. Their Asia IPO back on the menu. Slight adjustment, of course, because they've sold off the Australian business. Is it more appetizing then this time around? Yeah, it certainly seems like this is a more focused second attempt, Julia. They, they sold off their Australian business just, just a, you know, a few days, frankly, after they shelved their original plans for that $9.8 billion IPO back in July. They said at the time that part of the reason for that was the prevailing market conditions. They still say that could be a factor. There's no guarantee this will go ahead. But without the Australian business, this does look like a more uh, focused uh, IPO. That, that it's going to be more focused on China, which is one of their fastest growing areas, the world's biggest market.
market for beer. It's actually the biggest export market for Corona, which is one of AB InBev's uh, brands. So perhaps a slightly smaller price tag than the original 9.8 billion uh, and a more focused attempt. But again, no guarantee this is going to go ahead. No, no guarantees. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on now to a modern medical crisis, a modern-day medical crisis. President Trump announcing moves to ban flavoured e-cigarettes here in the United States. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Dr. Sanjay, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Given everything we know and perhaps what we don't know about this situation, do you think this is the right move at the right moment? Well, you know, the, the, the big concern, aside from what's been going on most recently with these illnesses and some of these deaths associated with vaping, one of the big concerns has been, look, even if these e-cigarettes help adults stop smoking, which maybe there's some evidence that it does that's still being investigated, could it also be uh, causing younger people to start smoking? That's one of the big concerns. I'll show you quickly, Julia, this data that I think is, is, is pretty compelling coming from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, basically saying that young people who start, smoke, uh, start vaping, about 30% of them will go on then to smoke real cigarettes, uh, combustible cigarettes, versus people who don't vape, about 8% go on to, st to start smoking real cigarettes. It's a huge difference, Julia, and I think that's always been the debate. Even if it helps adults stop smoking, it should not come on the back of creating a, a new generation of smokers. And I think that's what's really driving what came out of the White House this week. You know, it's quite fascinating to see the debate around this. And I know you were talking to the American Vaping Association president on air earlier today. And he was saying, look, you're removing life-saving options for smokers out there as a less harmful alternative. Is that the message here? It perhaps is safer than traditional forms of smoking. It doesn't mean that it's a good thing, particularly when some estimates say 25% of, of high school students right now have tried this in the last 30 days, maybe even more. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think there may be evidence that it's not as harmful as smoking. I mean, smoking is you're smoking tobacco, you're getting all those various chemicals. There's plenty of data to show the harm there. With vaping, we don't have a lot of that data yet. It is nicotine. Nicotine is highly addictive. Uh, having said all that, that you could make the argument that it's safer than traditional cigarettes. But that's not really the, the, the concern here. The concern is, uh, first of all, a lot of people are doing this that would have otherwise not done anything. They wouldn't have vaped, they wouldn't have smoked anyway. So it's attracting these people. And then on top of it, you've got this concern now with so many people getting sick. We don't know exactly what's going on there. It could be that people are vaping these, these black market THC sort of cartridges and things like that, that's still being investigated. But you have both of these issues sort of going on simultaneously. And again, up on the screen, people are looking at this. I mean, I've been talking about this, Julia, for a couple of years. 12% of, of high school students were, were admitting to vaping back in 2017. Now 27.5%. I mean, th these numbers are extraordinary. I talk to my own kids and, and they, they tell me that, look, in high school, probably everyone has tried it at one time or another. Right. That's how prevalent it, it has become. Yeah, I feel like this is one case where the regulators need to act first and, and perhaps ask questions and we learn more later. Yeah. Dr. Sanjay, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Thank you so much for Thank that. You, okay. All right, let's bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world.
Norwegian oil company is working to clean up a spill in the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian ripped through its facility, damaging some tanks. The company says aerial surveillance reveals the oil may have spread to open waters near the Abaco Islands. Meanwhile, the Bahamian government says the number listed as missing has now grown to 2,500 people. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is headed to Sochi, Russia to meet with President Vladimir Putin. Israel's election is now only five days away. The meeting comes as Prime Minister Netanyahu takes heat for his plan to annex parts of the West Bank if he's re-elected. Also on the agenda, of course, the war in Syria. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has denied lying to the Queen over the five-week suspension of Parliament. It follows a Scottish court's ruling that his government's advice to the monarch was unlawful. Did you lie to the Queen when you advised her to prorogue to suspend Parliament? Absolutely not. And uh, that, and indeed, the, as, as I say, the, the High Court in, in England plainly agrees with us, but the Supreme Court will have to decide. Yes, now on to the Supreme Court. All right, still to come here on First Move. Oil, guns and cryptocurrencies. The US briefly overtakes Saudi Arabia as the world's top oil exporter. America's CEOs step into the gun debate and the ripple effect. We speak to the CEO of the platform and get insight on the cryptocurrency XRP. That's all coming up. Stay with us. First move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Futures still pointing to a higher open here in the United States after yesterday's rally. Some good news as well on the trade front. More concessions, minor though they are, coming from the United States as well. A delay to tariff hikes. We've had the ECB, the European Central Bank, announcing fresh stimulus. Also breaking through some key psychological barriers for the U.S. majors here as well. The Dow beginning today's session above 27,000. That's the first time since July. We've got the S&P 500 above 3,000. The small cap, Russell 2,000 out of correction territory. In fact, the small caps have risen more than 5% this month, easily outpacing the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. Let's talk this through. Uh, Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon, joins us. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. Talk us through, because we have got some minor concessions. It feels like investors, the moment they see something positive on trade, they're joyful. Yes. So so we, we have 13 different times that we've heard that the U.S. and China are speaking and negotiating. Yeah. Oh, you just mean talks. Never mind the, the headlines. Forget the headlines. They're just talks. The calls. So the talks yes. are actually happening, and it's true that the market really is primed for good news. Yes. It wants to hear something good. You know, in the back of everybody's mind, there's an assumption that there is some kind of deal before the election in 2020, right? You know, that's not the only assumption that investors are making here. And we'll come back to the trade but we've got the list of even just a few of them and you can you can rattle through them here we are making a lot of assumptions about good things coming or bad things not happening that's right and even with the sell-off in august and the risk-off move in august there is so much good news and so much positive stuff for equities priced into the market
market now. So the market's still pricing in 125 basis points cuts from the beginning of the cutting cycle to the end of 2020. Yeah, so one we quarter actually, we've had. We actually think that's a lot. So we, we think we're going to get 25 in September and probably another 25 by the end of the year. But the, the, 20, the 2020 cuts are really up in the air. The other thing the market's pricing in is that inflation will never rear its ugly head again. And you have to ask yourself, is it really different this time? And the truth is the CPI numbers and the PCE numbers very slowly are starting to tick up. I wouldn't call it a run on inflation, but I would say that they're not as depressed as they were six months ago. The other thing you're saying, more stimulus from the European Central Bank, we got that. Some form of Brexit deal. Right. The markets are clearly pricing in a negotiated deal here, clearly, because otherwise the pound would be much weaker. Do you think so? I do think so. So despite all the chaos that's going on, potentially lying to the Queen, off with his head if necessary, you think a deal is expected? I think the market's pricing in a negotiated deal, some form of negotiated deal. Okay, so what does this say for investors right now? Because I see a lot of risks there for... So there does look like there's a lot of risks. I'll say this, all the cyclicals really got killed over the summer. So there's a catch-up trade going on. As you just mentioned, the Russell 2000, the small caps have about 7 or 8% to catch up with the S&P performance. So tactically, that feels like the right trade right now. And I'll say this, if the trade war goes to a low simmer as opposed to a hot tit for tat tra tariffs, I think the market moves higher. Do you? Because the market can absorb the certainty of the simmer, but it cannot absorb the, the escalation overnight, slapping on of more tariffs and killing the consumer sector. That's what it can, the market can't absorb that. You know, this is such a great point. For all the noise and the headline risk, whether it's businesses or whether it's consumers, they can't really react on a day-to-day -day basis. You have a, a long-term decision. So if things are at least stable, you have some degree of certainty amidst a great deal of uncertainty, I guess. That's right. And actually, the Fed put out a paper just last week, which was really interesting, that yeah. talked about the effect of trade policy uncertainty. And if it was just the first round of tariffs, we actually would be right recovered in growth by now because the economy can handle it. It's the uncertainty that the economy cannot handle. That's such a great point. The uncertainty, not even the actual impact of the tariffs here. That's we right. said that in the beginning, didn't we? They're just a tiny fraction. And actually, the manufacturing and the industrial section is a small fraction of the U.S. economy, too. That's right. But it's the, it's the fears. It's the fears. And actually, the interesting thing about the ISM manufacturing number is that profits tend to follow that. So even though manufacturing is like 12% of the U.S. economy, you tend to see markdowns in corporate profits when you see the ISM number come down. So the message to investors here is if as long as the trade remains at simmer, not boiling point again, then this is a good time to invest. It's probably a good time to invest because you have a global easing cycle, clearly, and yet you do not have a recession. And we really don't think there's a recession here. The way you get a recession here is if you wind up doing the tariffs at the end, at, in the middle of December and you really hurt the consumer sector. Right. Because you're already seeing a pulling back of CapEx. So then if you kill the consumer as well, then you have a recession here. But absent that, 
You're actually set up for a little a leg upward. I feel like if uh, President Trump is watching TV in the United States, he's heard that message one or two or several times. You're up for an award tonight. I am. We're a huge fan of your insight. Talk to me about the award that you're up for tonight. So I'm up for a Top Women in Asset Management Award tonight. I'm up for the Business Role Model of the Year. It's really exciting. I've been in this business. I love this business. I've been on the investment side as well as the marketing side and the strategy side. Yep. And I just think that helping people and businesses and you know institutions figure out what to do with their capital, how to make it grow, how to take care of their constituents is the most important thing. And so I love the business. Yeah, you've got our vote. First moves behind you, Alicia. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much for that. All right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. A positive open expected, as I mentioned, watching some key levels as well too. Coming up in the second half of the show, we're going to be following on with our crypto crazy week to the Ripple CEO. His interview coming up shortly. Stay with us. The market open is next. A double ringing of the bell here at the New York Stock Exchange this morning. Don't stop was the message, and investors aren't. We have a higher open, as expected for the U.S. majors this morning. Goodwill hunting, we called it. Plenty of goodwill. The United States announcing a tariff delay by two weeks to take them after the next set of talks with China. The European Central Bank announcing a new bond buying program. November 1st, the start date there. Perhaps no surprise, one day after a decision potentially or not on whether or not we see a no-deal Brexit as well. Strategic, it feels. Tech stocks among the, some of the biggest gainers today. The Nasdaq rising for the fourth time in four first time in four sessions. My apologies. Bank stocks also outperformed. They're trading a little bit lower today, continuing to watch bond yields, and they've come down slightly here. We've got the 10-year yield once again below 1.7%. All right, let me walk you through our global movers and the stocks that we're focusing on in the session. Broadcom moving higher. The chipmaker reporting after the close tonight. The stock has been on an upward trend but has been underperforming its peers. So we'll be watching for those earnings later. Oracle under a bit of pressure here. The co-CEO of the software company announced on Wednesday he would be taking a medical leave of absence. His co-CEO and also the Oracle founder Larry Ellison will take over his duties. The company also posted first quarter revenues that missed expectations. Yelp! This after speculation that the online review company could be a takeover target for Groupon. The Wall Street Journal reported the daily deals company Groupon was looking for an acquisition. Yelp, that was not an exclamation of distress. Yelp is higher in the session so far. The belief is that Yelp could be a good fit. What's going on in the energy space as well? Oil prices falling more than 2.5% right now. The IEA warning of a potential surplus in 2020. The United States also an interesting addition here. Briefly, the world's number one oil exporter in the month of June. John Devterius joins us now, and he's been speaking with the chief of the IEA. The underlying takeaway, and we've kind of underscored it there, John, is that demand is softening. The trade war here is not helping, and oh boy, is oil, oh, the U.S. 
exports of oil having a really detrimental impact on the price of oil here. It would be significantly higher without them. Well, quite a number you saw there in June, right, with the U.S. surging to number one above Saudi Arabia and Russia. But it's very difficult to see a breakout in prices right now, Julia, uh, according to three reports, in fact, that we saw this week, uh, the EIA in the States, OPEC out of Vienna, then the IEA, the International Energy Agency, as you're suggesting. They didn't downgrade the report. They said it's flat, but then they added that caveat that you were talking about here, that it will be, in a word, daunting to mop up that excess supply in 2020. So there could be downward pressure because of the geopolitical elements like U.S.-China trade, but just generally slower growth. Uh, and then we have this other twist here that nobody talks about, Julian. I'm glad you brought it up. Let's bring up the graphic here. Uh, between 2009 and 2019, it's extraordinary that we've had five countries within OPEC lose more than six million barrels a day. The United States filled the void. But you have to wonder what would oil prices be doing now if that supply was still on the market and you still have that expansion of shale production. But the IEA's executive director took the opposite position. What if the shale wasn't there? Let's take a listen. You should look at the problem from the consumer side as well. If there was no U.S. production growth, we could have seen oil prices skyrocketing, mm. as we have seen in the past when there was a geopolitical tension in the Middle East. We have seen now Iran, Venezuela production is going down. We could have seen oil prices skyrocketing. And thanks to production growth in the United States, we have now stable uh, oil prices. I'm sure that's not how the big Middle East producers or Russia see that equation, but that's the view of the consumers from Fatih Birol, Julia. Yeah, and we can't underestimate the pressure this is putting on the OPEC players as well and the, the supply cut mm. agreement they've got. But, John, we have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us. We will discuss further in the future, no doubt. John Deptaris, thank you so much yep. for that there. The legendary oilman and corporate raider Atibun Pickens died on Wednesday at the age of 91. Born in Oklahoma, he became known as the Oracle of Oil, and from the 1950s onwards, his investments reshaped the American energy landscape. He's perhaps best known for audacious leverage buyout attempts in the 1980s, targeting companies such as Phillips Petroleum. While the bids all ultimately failed, Pickens made millions in the process. We'll be right back. Stay with First Move. In our week of crypto crazy, we've been looking at ways cryptocurrencies can be a force for positive change. One example is Ripple. It's a platform used to make international monetary transactions faster and cheaper. Now, one way Ripple facilitates that is by using the cryptocurrency XRP. I asked CEO Brad Garlinghouse to explain what XRP actually is and how it all works. Listen in. XRP is like a Bitcoin. It's a digital asset. It's today uh, the third most valuable digital asset. And it, what we do is we take a transaction between banks and instead of having a bank pre-fund an account at the other bank, which is how correspondent banking works today. The Bank of Brad in dollars would pre-fund the Bank of Julia, perhaps in pounds, and then I would debit and credit that. But that means I have to pre-fund and have dormant capital sitting at that other bank. What we allow banks to do, we allow payment providers to do, is to tap into the liquidity of XRP liquidity. So today there's lots of liquidity between XRP and US dollar. There's lots of liquidity between XRP and British pound. 
and you could tap into that to move value in real time, in seconds. And even compared to Bitcoin, which takes up to 12 minutes to complete one transaction, XRP is extremely fast at about three seconds per transaction. That has meant XRP is extremely scalable in contrast to how Bitcoin works. So it basically goes, Bank Brad has dollars, dollars get transferred to XRP, then XRP is transferred to Sterling, and Sterling then hits Bank Julia. That's how it works. Th that's, that's exactly right. And so from a consumer point of view and how we're working with, for example, a MoneyGram, the consumer itself doesn't actually see that it's flowing through XRP to solve the problem. What the consumer sees is simply a better product at a better price. That's good for MoneyGram, that's good for MoneyGram's customers. And so we're seeing more momentum than we've ever had around using XRP to, to move this liquidity around the world. And so we couldn't really be happier about how that has played out in a world where there's still a lot, I think, of FUD, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt about what's going on in crypto. This is a real use case solving a real problem for real customers. Okay, so which banks right now are actually using Ripple? We have signed up about two, over 200 banks around the world. Some of those banks just use our software to do that debit and credit fiat to fiat. And some of them are using XRP in those flows. Uh, we have banks like Satander that we've been working with for years and are moving lots of volume uh, through, through the Ripple's technology. And then as I mentioned earlier, uh, payment providers like MoneyGram or RIA or Asimov that are using XRP actually to move that liquidity uh, and really reducing their costs and improving the product. Just in terms of the transactions though that you're seeing using Ripple, what proportion of those actually use XRP versus direct? And just where do you see that ratio going? I'm just trying to get a sense of, of, sort of how much yeah. XRP itself is actually used as part of the Ripple platform. So I would say the order of magnitude way to think about it is similar to the proportion of customers. So uh, if we've got, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred customers we have launched, 10 to 15 of them uh, we've talked about using XRP, you know, I, I would use that ratio as the, the total ratio between what's happening with Ripple's technology overall. Institutions using Ripple can choose whether to use the cryptocurrency XRP. Some do, some don't, as you just heard there. XRP, like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, has been volatile. I asked Brad if the message to investors is don't use XRP to speculate. People are going to speculate on different asset classes. People speculate on gold, currencies. Uh, I mean, you name it, people are going to speculate. When we think about this, and what I've said very publicly is, I think the long-term value of any digital asset is gonna be derived from the utility it delivers. There is a lot of hype in the crypto market space. Uh, you know, we've seen that even recently, you know, we, we a lot of attention around what's going on with Libra and Facebook's uh, announcement around Libra. Today, that's just a white paper. It actually isn't, it isn't live, it hasn't launched. And it, you know, so I, I think that the hype often gets ahead of reality in many technologies. And I think that's true in the crypto space as well. What I would encourage any, any person looking at this marketplace is to really understand what is real, what is not real, and understand is there a use case, is there a utility? Bitcoin, I'm long Bitcoin, and Bitcoin I think has real utility around being a store of value, it's digital gold. But if a Bitcoin transaction takes on average 12 minutes to confirm and the transaction cost is over $1 per transaction, 
that's not gonna be great for a payments solution. So around payments, we think XRP is uniquely and extremely well positioned to solve that payments problem. It's extremely fast at about three seconds per transaction, and it costs about a thousandth of a penny to actually enable that transaction. So we often make the point that well, where Bitcoin is very profound in solving that store of value, an XRP transaction's about a thousand times faster and it's about a thousand times cheaper per transaction. I saw some uh, Twitter traffic, one in particular, Crypto Bitlord, that threatened to take over um, because they say that, that you, the company, is dumping, that you're pushing supply out to the market. Can you explain to me the difference between XRP and, and Bitcoin with regards supply and with regards sure. how much ownership Ripple itself actually has? as a proportion of XRP out there at this moment. Okay, so the first thing to understand is these are all open source technologies. When people talk about you know, forking technologies, you have seen Bitcoin forked multiple times. You have Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin uh, BSV, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin, I can't name them all. There's four or five forks of the Bitcoin blockchain. Bitcoin, obviously, the primary BTC has remained kind of the, the, the most notable. But in the same way, people can take XRP and open source technology and hypothetically, they could fork that if they chose to do so. Now, around the ownership piece, as is the case with Bitcoin, there's some big whales that were early in the Bitcoin community. Uh, you know, there's one wallet that has a million Bitcoin in it. Nobody knows who owns it. In the XRP community, Ripple is the largest owner. And the point I have made is we are the most interested party in the success of the XRP ecosystem. We're very focused on our use case and how do we solve problems with XRP. But one of the things I'm excited about is you're seeing a growing ecosystem of other players investing in other use cases around XRP. Just recently, we announced a partnership with Coil, which is doing micropayments for content. So next time you're reading a story on the Financial Times website and you hit that paywall, you hypothetically just pay, hey, here's a, here's a dime, here's a quarter, here's 50 cents. Where today, you know, that's a pretty hard problem. And companies like Coil are going to use XRP for those micropayment transactions. So yes, Ripple owns a lot of XRP. We're very interested in the success of XRP. But uh, the, the accusations of us dumping, you know, that's not in our best interest to do that. You know, we're clearly interested in a, a healthy, successful ecosystem. And so we would never do that. And in fact, have taken steps to lock up most of the XRP we own in escrow such that we can't touch it. Interesting. So, but you agree that you can control the price to some degree because ultimately oh, no. the, the Ripple community has so much power, no? No, I mean, if you look at the correlations between XRP and most of the crypto market, where often called the altcoins, you see a very high degree of correlation. You know, uh, Ripple can't control the price of XRP any more than uh, you know what, the whales can control the price of Bitcoin. You know, some of these markets, particularly smaller tokens that are you know have a lower market cap and lower float, if you will, uh, you know, they are at risk of people manipulating them. But you know, you're talking about. XRP trades, you know, order of magnitude, a billion dollars, according to coin market cap, trades, you know, an order of magnitude, a billion dollars a day of activity. So I don't think anybody's in a position to really manipulate those prices. It's quite funny. One of the big questions that I was asked when I was talking to people about XRP, they said, what price do you sell XRP to, to the financial institutions that you're dealing with here? Do you give, do you give them a discount and, and is there a lockup? Can you answer those questions? Because this kept coming up. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, let's use MoneyGram as the example. When MoneyGram is moving money from U.S. dollar to Mexican peso, they're buying at market. They're, they're not, there's no you know, special sweetheart deal there. There are times when we work with institutional investors who might say, hey, we want to buy $10 million of XRP, and we would have lockups that would prevent them from dumping. You know, We don't want some other party buying a whole lot of XRP and dumping it on the market. And so we would hypothetically have restrictions about what they could sell and, and what, uh, you know, how, how often. And usually those are based upon volume in the market. Yeah, so you, you might give them it slightly cheaper, but you say to them, hey, you're not allowed to sell it for six months, let's say, or a year. Yeah, correct, that, that's basically yeah. correct. So just at a time when cryptocurrency investments are battling to become more mainstream, a behemoth facing some skepticism on its own part is trying to enter the space. Facebook announced plans to launch its own cryptocurrency recently, Libra. Now their scale could be potent. Could that be a bad thing or a good thing though going forward? Ice Brad, that very question. I think it's been net good for the industry to bring the attention that Libra has brought on the industry. I think that part of the, the maturation of the industry is that transparency and that, that that debate, that healthy debate. And so net net, I think it's been a good thing. I think it's way too early to predict exactly what the implications are going to be. You know, Facebook obviously is a consumer oriented company, came out and talked about how they're more aggressively competing with financial institutions. They highlighted Western Union as an example. And so our view is, hey, we can we can partner with those financial institutions and help them solve a problem at scale that we, we've talked about here. So I think it's too early to tell. I think Facebook came out in a way that uh, probably wasn't as engaging to regulators as maybe they could have been, and that stirred up a lot of concern. And we've made the point that we shouldn't paint the entire crypto industry with a broad brush. There's different types of projects. Some are trying to be very regulatory compliant, like what Ripple is doing with XRP. There's also some that are trying to circumvent regulators, uh, things like Monero that are intentionally trying to be, you know, they're about anonymity. And so I, I think, you know, the, as regulators look at the category, they just need to be thoughtful about not painting it with one broad brush. And that's really what we've tried to emphasize. The CEO of Ripple there. Now, speaking of Libra, the French government is coming out strongly against it. The French finance minister is saying this eventual privatization of money contains risks of abuse of dominant position and contains risks to sovereignty and risks for consumers and for companies. He also pointed to a systematic risk, a systemic risk, due to the sheer number of Facebook users, 2 billion people. For those reasons, according to Lamare, Libra cannot be developed in Europe. The challenges remain. All right, coming up on First Move, the company is taking aim at American gun violence. White Uber, Levi Strauss, and many more are criticizing Congress and calling for action. Next. Welcome back to First Move. 145 companies are calling on the U.S. Senate to act on gun violence. In a strongly worded open letter, brands like Levi Strauss, Uber and Twitter are saying current inaction is, quote, simply unacceptable. Christine Romans joins us on this story. Christine, great to have you with us. It's the strongest message, I think, yet from the business community to say, look, we want broader background checks. We want red flag laws here. And actually, public sentiment is on their side, it seems. Does it get any action? 
It's interesting because public sentiment is more in line with what you're hearing from these CEOs uh, than what you're hearing from Washington, D.C. And this is another example, I think, Julia, of, of corporate leadership. We've seen it in other issues over the past few years. But these companies are saying that their, their customers and their employees are demanding that the status quo is not good enough, that gun safety, gun violence in this country is a public health crisis. Let me read to you a little bit from this letter. And they're asking the Senate to take up this, uh, to take this up. This is directly to members of the Senate. Doing nothing about America's gun violence crisis is simply unacceptable, and it is time to stand with the American public on gun safety. It's very detailed in its recommendations as well. Wants background checks. Um, these CEOs want background checks on all gun sales, and they want to um, have stronger red flag laws. They want courts to be able to issue life-saving risk protect protection orders so that families and law enforcement, when they see something about a young person or someone who maybe, they talk about suicide, someone who is struggling um, with depression and maybe uh, maybe on the path to taking his or her life, that there can be a court intervention here as well to help somebody prevent somebody from from getting a, a gun. So very detailed in its in its um, in its diagnosis of what's wrong with America, a public health crisis from guns and what to do about it. You know, it's a it's a saving lives issue. It's a financial issue for some of these politicians, depending on where they take financial support right. from. Um, the last time I checked, there were 500 companies in the S&P 500, and there are only 145 companies on this list. It's a tough one, isn't it? You know, even companies that take bold stances on other issues like climate change are off this list. It's interesting because some companies that aren't on this list have also uh, have also moved on this. For example, you've got uh, Walmart, which is changing some of its policies for what it sells. It's already uh, raised the the age to uh, to buy ammunition and to buy weapons in its in its stores. And it's interesting because Walmart is both a big seller of ammunition and firearms, but it also has been the scene of of um, a, a crime scene. You know, 22 people were killed in El Paso, 48 shot there overall. So some of these companies have found themselves sort of on both sides uh, of this issue. I think that there's momentum in corporate America on this. And I think executives, I know that when you talk to them, I do. I ask them, what's your company's stance on guns? This is going to be the issue of our time, I think. Yeah, and this is not contravening, contravening Second Amendment rights. Christy Romans, thank you for that. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.